few years ago, I was working on a book entitled, Oh God, Where Are You When I Need You? I received a letter from my sister Beverly, who died a few months ago of cancer at age 75, approximately, just before her 75th birthday. My sister Beverly is the elder of my two sisters. I have one remaining. The letter was something that had come to her from a friend with whom she had maintained contact in Iowa, who was the daughter of my mother's best friend. Her name is Gail Faulkner of the Des Moines, Iowa area. The letter had been written by my mom three years before I was born. In her own handwriting, the original, I sent it back to Beverly, and I believe that I can inherit that now, if her children don't, from her picture and letter box. I quoted substantially from that letter in the first chapter or so of the book entitled The Answer to Unanswered Prayer that many of you may have received. And here's why I did. You know, I was a little kid who grew up in Eugene, Oregon, in the unincorporated part of a small town in Lane County, Oregon, born in 1930, and discovered as I began to become a little more aware of my environment and other kids around me and the world around me and things like kindergarten and school, that my dad was out of step with the rest of the world. My family kept Saturday for Sunday. And I was very ashamed of that. I was embarrassed. I was angry. I was everything but really tickled pink about the fact that everybody made fun of me as this little urchin from this poor family that lived outside the incorporated city limits of a small town and whose dad preached in a clapboard church without indoor facilities to a group of farmers on Saturday when all the people of the church-going world knew that Sunday is the day you go to church. Well, I grew up resenting that, and the moment I could, when I was 18, I got out from under my dad's religion and all the things about it I didn't like, and I joined the Navy. I've often said in, of course, a little bit tongue-in-cheek humor, I, I ran away from my father's authority. I joined the Navy to get out from under authority. That was the wrong move, I'll tell you what. They let me know within a matter of moments they owned every part of my anatomy, and uh, they demonstrated that repeatedly over the next four years during the Korean War. And I did exactly what I was told by a number of men that I oftentimes suspected might have even been intellectually my inferior, but that isn't the way it works in the Navy. So there I was, free at last, you know, in the Navy. But I did that to get away from a repressive religion out of step with the rest of the world. Now, you know, finally, when I came back out of the Navy and I began to investigate some of the things that my father had taught, and I began to read some of his booklets, I also began to get booklets from the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. I got Mary Baker Eddy's publications. I got publications from people like Dr. DeHaan, the older one who was now dead, of Methodist and Baptist and other literature, and I began comparing some of their booklets and their doctrinal brochures with what my father taught. And eventually I began to prove many of the things that he was saying, but I did so over an incredible obstacle, because you know, most young kids think that their own dad can't be anybody. By the time we're 16, we're amazed at how stupid our old man really is. 
And we think, this old fogey is out of step. What's he know from nothing? He, he's absolutely ignorant. He belongs to some other generation. He doesn't know the way I feel. He doesn't know the way I want to live my life. It's my life, and I'll live it my way, Dad. You know, I mean, that's the way we are when we're a kid. We're up there squeezing sits and wiping them off the mirror. Uh, we're eating our candy and hot food and going up and down the Willamette Street. We call it in those days dragging a gut and a hot rod, but that was real body language for simply going up and down the main street of Eugene, Oregon to see if something would happen. And eventually we're going up and down and somebody throws a tomato and sure enough, something happens. Uh, we have a fight, you know. So I grew up in that environment at that time wanting to, like any little fledgling, try my own wings and live my own life and go my own way. And I resented that religion. My father represented to me a gargantuan block, a huge roadblock, a big bulwark between me and the Bible and the truth of God. Now this has always been important to me for the following reason. You've all heard of Oral and Richard. Roberts, that is, you know, the 36 foot tall Jesus that said, I'm going to take you home. No, you're not. I don't want to go for it. And some racetrack guy sent him enough money just in time to keep the Lord from taking him home, and he's still here. But that's weird. You know, I mean, when somebody threatens me with his death, if I don't send him money, he's talking to the wrong guy. But that's what happened on television. Well, there are a lot of father and son combinations like that, and there have been down through the years, I suppose. Everybody assumes I'm just one more of those. But here I am, I come out of the Navy, and there are 36 students in Ambassador College, and my dad is absolutely exhausted, and he is practically praying for death. As a matter of fact, on one occasion said that he did that because he was having such a struggle keeping that work going. One of the first things I did, if you talk about embarrassing, when I got out of the Navy, my dad asked me to drive him up to Lake County in Central California, and he went up, and we slept in that car that night, and he spent hours with the family asking them to mortgage, get a second lien on their home to save Ambassador College from going under. That's how wealthy he was, what a big organization he had going. I entered a class of four students in my class and graduated with that same class of four in 1956. I got a job in the office at the immense salary of $37.50 a week. And I lived in a very tiny little house that I rented. And so I look back and I think of the millions of people out here who probably assume, well, Herbert W., wasn't he Garner Ted's father? And uh, they mix us up a lot of times. People come and say, I've watched your, I've listened to, to your dad for decades. I say, no, you haven't. You only heard him from about 78 and 9 until he died. And most of those were repeats. And they look at me in amazement. I said, no, for those 20 years from 1957, 58 until 1978, you heard me. That was my voice. And I only put my father's old broadcasts on on Sunday, so I didn't have to do radio seven days a week, but only six. And he only did a handful of little radio programs as an anniversary for the European broadcasts out of the Brigadewood studio, maybe six, eight, or ten of them in over 20 solid years. My father was retired from radio. So in all those years, I was doing that broadcast. And I will meet people to this day that will actually think, well, Garner Ted just saw a good thing, and he's riding right along on his daddy's coattails, and his dad's a minister, and so his son decided to become a minister. No, isn't the way it happened. It's very important to me because, you see, you don't have that roadblock. You don't have that gigantic 
prejudice in your mind that says to you as a human being, whether woman or male, whether or male or female, my father says that he is right and all these other great, big, multi-million member churches are wrong. Now, how do you stomach something like that when you're 13, 16, and 19? You really don't. You just say, well, he's crazy, and my neighborhood uh, kids and friends are right, and the Methodists are right, and the Baptists are right, and you don't really think it through, and the Church of Christ is right, and the Holiness Movement is right, and the Reorganized Church is right, and the Catholics are right, and then it would be, well, now, wait a minute, that can't be right. You'd think a little later on, if any one of them is right, then the rest of them are all wrong, right? We're dealing with wrong and right here. I've never yet seen anybody go to church where it says this is the wrong church right over there they go in there I'm going the wrong one I've never seen anybody go to the number two just the number two well there are the second and third Baptists but they don't really believe they're second and third that just has to do with the location in town there's the first Baptist church but most people don't go to a church that is kind of like Avis number two we try harder it isn't that way with churches they believe that they go to the right one so it was incredibly important to me because many years growing up, I would hear my father talk about miracles, and I had my doubts. I didn't automatically swallow what he said. And one of the things he told about was how he came into the knowledge of the Sabbath day. And he told about how my mother was deathly ill. She had been in the rose garden, and she'd been picking roses and jammed a rose thorn into her thumb, clear to the bone. And it got infected. And along about that same time, she was attacked by a big Airedale dog in the neighborhood, and the dog bit her on the arm very deeply. She developed blood poisoning and lockjaw. She had what they call in quinsy, and her throat swelled almost totally shut, and her jaw was locked rigid. And in those days, all they needed to do was to knock your front teeth out and put a tube down here because they didn't have intravenous feeding and all this type of stuff that they have today in modern medicine. And the doctor had given her up for dead. And she had gone from a normal 105, she was a very small little woman, down to about 86 pounds. And she looked like skin and bones. And my father thought she was hours away from dying. Well, my dad had been raised a Quaker, and my mother was a Methodist, and neither one of them had darkened the church in probably many, many years since their marriage. They had two girls, but no boys. My brother Richard David had not yet been born, because my dad and mom were RH positive and RH negative. And back in those days, they didn't understand that either. But my mother became so ill with her second child that the doctor told her she could never again have any more babies. Well, there was a neighbor lady next door. His name was Mrs. Runcorn. She was visiting, as neighbors will. They were very close back then in Astoria in the 1920s. And she said, Loma, you believe in God, don't you? My mom said, as she could mumble, that she did. And Mrs. Runcorn said, would you mind if our pastor... And my husband and I would come over and pray for you. My father's written this all up in his autobiography many years ago. And she didn't mind, and she asked if they would. Well, they came over, and my father and mother knelt down with this man and this neighbor lady and her husband by her bed. And he anointed her with a little bottle of oil, and he just talked in the prayer like he was talking to someone in the room. And he told God that he had promised, and that since he is God, he can't swear by anything greater or higher than himself and his own word. And he said, you can't go back on your promise, because you promised that the elders of your church anoint the sick and pray over them that they will be healed. And then he began to thank God that God had already heard that prayer, and that Loma had been healed, and he sounded so confident. 
My father was just there listening to prayer for the first time in years and years, hadn't darkened the door of a church. My mother was not a religious person. She just would like a lot of people go to church a couple of times a year, hadn't been to church in years. After that man got up and that group of people left that door, my mother began talking aloud and her jaw loosened. She got up out of bed and she put on an old gray overcoat and she was emaciated and thin and she said, Herbert, I've just got to get out of the house. I want to go outside and look at the stars. And they walked outside. She came back in and went to bed and got the first good night's sleep she had gotten in about six or eight weeks. She got up the next morning and went about her housework and cooked my father's breakfast. And the doctor came about 10 o'clock, my father wrote it up, and expected to see her either dead or dying. And she met him in the walkway, and he looked like he'd seen a ghost. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. I tended, as I heard this repeated over and over again out of the pulpit when I was a kid, to doubt it. Scene changes. I'm sitting in my favorite chair in Tyler, Texas, about four years ago or so, and I'm holding in my hands a letter from the Faulkner family, whose daughter was, was the daughter of my mother's closest high school chum, had retrieved the letter from her old letterbox and sent it to Beverly, with whom she's kept in contact, my sister, because they were of the same age. And Beverly sent it to me. And this lady had just found it a matter of a month or so before. And I'm holding in my own hand my mother's handwriting, dated 1927. She is not especially religious, remember. She's a Methodist, but only nominally. She went through that entire story, as I told it to you, in graphic detail to her best high school friend. All doubt was forever removed from my mind about the fact that my mom was given life and healed miraculously not only of lockjaw, blood poisoning, and quinsy, but my father was praying in his mind, as long as God is going to heal her, would you also allow Loma to give me a son? And not long thereafter, two boys came along, or I wouldn't be standing here today. Now that triggered a thought in my mom's mind, because this lady next door was different. The lady next door was one of these people who kept Saturday for Sunday. And so she went over there and she said, Mrs. Runcorn, why do you folks keep Saturday for Sunday? And then followed a very interesting thing, and I won't go through it with you in great detail, but I'm going to read a lot of these scriptures to you as we go along today, because I want you to understand the tactics that this lady used, and they were extremely effective. She said, well, Loma, since you asked, let me show you why. And she simply said, I'm not going to comment. I want you to read the passages I point out to you. She turned to Genesis 1 and 2, and she had my mother read. She turned to Exodus 16, and she had my mother read. She turned to Exodus, the 20th chapter, and she had my mom read some scriptures there. She turned to Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 58 and had her read those. She turned to Mark 2, 26 and 27, and then to the book of Acts in several passages, especially Acts, the 13th chapter, 37 to 44. We'll get to a little later. She turned to Hebrews 4, 1 through 9, and she turned to several other scriptures about God's law, and about the Sabbath day in the Old and the New Testament. And when my mother had finished reading where this lady put her finger and said, read this verse, read that verse, read these three verses, she looked at her and she said, why, according to what I'm reading here, then the Sabbath is the day we're supposed to be keeping. And Mrs. Runcorn said, well, you said it, Loma. I didn't. Well, then she asked for literature. 
and she began to read and study the Bible. And she got all excited about it because, after all, the pastor of that church had anointed her and had and God had healed her miraculously from three terrible diseases and raised her up and saved her life. So obviously she was impressed. She had to say in her own mind, God hears that man's prayers. So she began studying. Finally, she couldn't wait to spring it on my dad. She just knew how excited he would be. And he came home one day and she said, Herbert, I've discovered the most marvelous truth. I want to tell you all about it. And she began going through these scriptures and his visage grew darker and darker and he became a little more and more nervous and more perplexed and disturbed. And finally, he said, Loma, where did you get all of these ridiculous ideas? Now, I can imitate my dad pretty good. <laughs> and he said, uh, you can't tell me all of these churches are wrong. I know that the big Methodist church and the Baptist church and the Roman Catholic church and all of them have got scriptures and somewhere in the Bible I know it says you should keep Sunday and I'm going to find it. Well, they got to fighting over it. My mom wouldn't give up. He first of all tried to use all the arguments. You can't tell me all these churches are wrong and a bunch of corn-bone Oregon farmers over here that don't know from nothing. Why, he was a bright young advertising executive. He knew better than all that. He was educated, he thought. But he didn't know much about the Bible. But she stuck to her gun. She wouldn't give up, so he threatened her with divorce. She said, even if you divorce me, I'm not going to give up the Sabbath. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. He said, all right, I'm going to cram it down your throat. And he went to the Portland Public Library, to the theological section, and he began checking out everything he could find on Sunday. And he researched it and researched it and researched it, and he's written in his autobiography. It took him six solid months. Meantime, my mom is going off with the Runcorns to listen to their pastor and is observing the Sabbath day, and my dad is doing the best he can to knock it into a cocked hat to get her to give it up, and finally he's going to come and present her with all the evidence and prove what fools those next-door neighbors really were. Not that he wasn't grateful for the healing, he just didn't go along with her crazy idea about Saturday for Sunday. You know what he found? He found out there's not one Sunday-keeping church that has any excuse other than the fact they got it from the Roman Catholics. And he found out the only excuse the Roman Catholics have is that their popes down through about 800 years, not the first one, not the second one, third one or fourth one, gradually imposed all of these pagan holidays, including Easter and Christmas, which is nothing but the pagan Roman Saturnalia of the worship of the middle of winter, of the winter solstice of the sun, of Solus Invictus, the invisible sun, and has all the accoutrements and paraphernalia of the ancient Babylonian and Akkadian and Sumerian worship of those pagan gods, which included orbs, the story of the little tree that sprung up overnight out of the old dead log that was supposed to be the pseudo-resurrection of Nimrod, who had married his own mother, Semiramis, who was the head of the Babylonian mystery religion, and whose name was Astarte, Silent E, Astar, we pronounce it Easter, and that her accoutrements were eggs and rabbits and the sacred goose and the fly that was a symbol of Baal. And he began to discover such pagan idolatry and to discover how the gradually forming apostate church of the end of the first, beginning of the second and third century was adapting pure pagan practices but calling it Christian. I saw one of the most marvelous examples of that in a museum in Mexico City many, many decades, well, many, about three decades ago. 
I was down there and saw a baptismal font that dated back to the 16th, 17th century. It was Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl, the word Quetzal means bird or winged, and the word Coatl, C-O-A-T-L, is one of the ancient uh, Aztec words that means snake or serpent. Well, Quetzalcoatl was the god of the Aztecs and the Mayans, and it is a rattlesnake, a kind of a, a figurative rattlesnake. If some of you have been to the Pyramides de San Juan Teotihuacan down in Mexico City, you've seen the huge snake's heads just festooning all these pyramids, and it's all throughout that religious uh, background of those nations down there. Here was this snake forming by its coils and its tail the base of a baptismal font. And here were the feathers on it with this ugly head with the fangs right at the top. So all of these pagans down there in Mexico could approach this man, be garbed in black, doing funny things with his hands, turning around, tinkling bells, making signs, dipping water in startled infant spaces, but they could stand there and see Quetzalcoatl while the priest is mumbling something in a language they didn't understand and saying, you're getting baptized. Now, history absolutely demonstrates that the apostate church gradually over centuries, oftentimes at the edge of the sword imposed these other dates on suffering would-be Christian people. Do you know what the word quarto deciman means? I've talked about it often on television. It merely means 14th. Deciman, 10, quarto, 4, 14th. The quarto deciman controversy raged for almost 500 years or more, perhaps more than that, throughout all of North Africa, the Middle East, Asia Minor, Greece, the Peloponnesus, all of Italy, clear up among the Vaudois of the mountains of Switzerland and of the Alps in France. And it wasn't until the Council of Whitby it was finally put down at 664. And you know to this day that there are people who still call themselves the Vaudois and the Albigensians in tiny San Marino in Italy, which is one of the Lilliputian nations in the northern part of the Italian uh, mountains, which is a separate nation, just like Andorra or Liechtenstein and so on, some of the tiny, as they say, Lilliputian nations of Europe. And there are a group of Sabbath-keeping people who keep the Sabbath in San Marino, Italy, not very far from the papacy to this day. But finally, over the centuries, most of those people disappeared from history because, you see, Constantine, who had been a so-called converted sun worshiper, got all the clerics together of that struggling church which had an awful lot of murder and assassination and politics going on in it and said Christians shall no longer be found Judaizing by observing the Sabbath on the seventh day or Pash or Pesach or the Passover on the 14th, thus the name Quarto Decimon, of Abib or Nisan, which is the first month of the year in the spring when God told his people to observe the Passover as the symbol of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the Protestants have only the authority of the Pope in Rome. Do you think there is a scripture anywhere in the Bible that tells you to observe Sunday? I have a booklet called Saturday, Sunday, Which? There are several places in the New Testament where the words first day of the week are mentioned. I want to turn to one in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, and let you read it right quickly. This is quite interesting. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Some of you may have brought Bibles with you. Some of you may not have. The first time I encountered this scripture was in the Lutheran church in Eugene, Oregon, when I was only a boy.
Uh, let me see. Beginning in verse 1, and you may have seen this yourself because where I read this scripture, and it was only verse 2 that was quoted. It was on a little manila envelope, just big enough to maybe fold a couple of dollar bills and put it in. And printed right on the back of it had these words, verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, period. And that was printed on that little envelope. I don't know if you've ever seen that printed on an envelope in the little rack there where they keep the book, you know, the prayer books and the Bible and the hymnal in a church, a large church. But I did in the Lutheran church in Eugene, Oregon. What does that tell anybody here? Let's read it. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Oh, then they were collecting something for people called saints who were Christians, converted people, in a Gentile area of Corinth on the Peloponnesus of Greece, population about... 400,000 people. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, that was Iconium, Lystra, and Derby in the Galatian province of Asia Minor, which is now the Anatolian Peninsula or Turkey, even so, he wanted them to do. You do this too. Upon the first of the week, they is supplied by the translator because they know it really means the first day of the week. Let every one of you lay by him in store. Now, I have done that in Tyler. I have... We gave away a lot of our food, but years ago I bought some storage food that is packed in hydrogen of beans and corn and wheat and so on, and I have a bunch of cans of stored food. I have laid by me in store. When you lay by you in store, what do you do? Well, you take something that is yours and you store it, right? Anybody disagree with that? You, you, you don't? You don't take something that you... You don't lay by you in store? I thought you did. I thought it was... Oh, no. Yeah. It's correct. When you lay by you in store, you take something that belongs to you and you keep it. You preserve it. You lay it by you in storage, in store. Till I come. According, of course, as God has prospered him. That there be no gatherings when I come. Why didn't he want them to be out gathering when he came? Well, because what they were laying by in store was figs and prunes and dates and grapes and corn and wheat and barley because they were gathering food out of the fields for poor people in Palestine who were suffering a great drought. And there is evidence of that in the writings of Josephus and other profane historical sources that talk about a terrible famine that struck Palestine at that time. And because God's people were coming to the emergency aid with food and clothing and so on, shipments of things, to others of God's people, Paul wanted them to take the first work day of the week, the first day of the week, and get out there and sweat with a sickle in their hand, climb the trees and shake the boughs, get the peaches and seed them and split them open, lay them on the rack and let the sun dry them, and work by the sweat of their brow on the first day of the week and store it up so they wouldn't be out there working when he was there teaching them, ministering to them, preaching to them. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, you among yourselves decide who you're going to send as envoys, them will I bring your liberality, your generosity, what you lay by yourself in store and keep up there till I come unto Jerusalem. Why would anybody print that on the back of an offering envelope as some sort of justification that they're supposed to pass the plate? Why would anybody, a Roman Catholic cleric or anybody else in the Catholic Encyclopedia or any great bound book in the Methodist or Baptist Church, appeal to this scripture as some kind of authority for worshiping God on Sunday? 
Isn't it amazing when you look at what the Bible really says, you can actually go back to the fifth grade and you can approach the Bible as a fifth grader and get a lot more out of it than as if you're listening to some of these seminarians. Like the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. All of the Protestants and the Catholics say, no, it's not. It is eternal life. But it's just eternal life in a different place. Torture. You know, spitting, sizzling, frying like a piece of bacon in hot grease for all eternity because you're a little Chinese girl, only six days of age, and the missionary had a flat tire, and their old rickety car didn't get there in time in 1932 to teach you, yes, Jesus loves me. So because you were a pagan and you believed in pagan gods, well, that's your chance. You were only two or three or four days old, but you died as a little giant Chinese Japanese baby, and your little soul went up there, and you are going to fry for all eternity. And that's what a lot of people believe. My, mother, my uh, wife used to tell me of how absolutely frightened she used to be at the preacher, and she was dragged off when she was a kid to the Church of Christ. I was dragged off to the Church of God seventh day, so that, that was our experience when we were little kids, see, and I didn't like it any more than she did. But her pastor was up there frightening the daylights out of her with pictures of hell. And he said, you know, I'm going to fan the fires of hell and dangle you sinners over it. I'm going to make it really vivid for you. You know, he had pictures of people in cauldrons upside down with Satan pouring coals on their feet and their head blistered, eyebrows singeing off of them. And he said, now how long would you like to have your finger held over a hot gas fire? He said, try it out for ten minutes. Well, that's one of the batting of an eyelash in eternity. We're talking about the fact you're going to burn and burn and burn. I mean, people would have nightmares. My... My wife woke up as a little bitty girl screaming uh, with, with visions of hell in her mind for doing things that were supposed to be bad. Isn't it amazing when you look at the Bible? I once remember a young Marine in San Diego, California, 1954, came up to me when I preached a little bit about that scripture, the wages of sin is death. He said, I asked him, well, what is death? He said, well, I understand what that is. I've seen it. I said, well, that's, that's what the Bible means, too. If you want to look out the scriptures about death, it says the dead know not anything. It said, like sheep are they laid in their graves, and the worms shall feed upon them. And it talks about the dead as being absolutely oblivious and unconscious. And how Job said, I will wait in my grave till my change come. Thou wilt call, thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. And I know that even after my death, the worms should destroy this body, yet in my flesh at the resurrection I shall see God and the Bible talks everywhere about a resurrection but millions of people think we live on a soul factory a huge world turning around every day thousands of souls are flitting off to heaven or flitting where down into the earth they don't know or out on the surface of some sun someplace called hell no the Bible doesn't say that does it it says the wages of sin is death. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. Let me show you a few scriptures. You all, nobody here doubts that the Sabbath day is the day listed in the Ten Commandments, do they? Surely not. You know better than that. The Ten Commandments say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the eternal, and that is the very one who became Jesus Christ, if you read John 1 and Hebrews 1, created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed, that means sanctified, gave it sacredness, set it apart for holy use and purpose, hallowed it. And he talked about 
how we're to observe God's Sabbath day in perpetuity. One of the most important scriptures that my mother was asked to read is found in the 31st chapter of the book of Exodus. And I'll turn to that. Exodus 31. Now, this was read by her very silently with no comment whatsoever from Mrs. Runcorn, her next-door neighbor, who had asked if it was all right if they come over and pray for her. She was asked to begin reading with verse 12, and she began to read aloud. The Eternal spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily, my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And then people will answer, Oh, well, sure, but that's the Jews. Is it really? No, it's not. Who was Israel? Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel after the wrestling match with the divine messenger when he said, You are, as a prince, one who has prevailed or overcome with God. So Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson to whom the promise of eternal inheritance of the earth and eternal life was reiterated, became known as Israel. He had all kinds of kids, from Leah and from Billah and from Rachel, and he had Dan, Gad, Issachar, Naphtali, Reuben, Ephraim, Levi, Judah, he had all of those, and finally Joseph, who had two children named Ephraim and Manasseh, 13 in all. Joseph, you count him, 12, including Dinah, a girl. One of them was named Judah. Judah is the eponymous ancestor of the Jews. The very first place in the Bible you ever read the nickname, the short name, Jew, for Judah, is in 2 Kings 16.6, where the Jews, get this, are at war with Israel. How would you like to read a newspaper headline today? Jews at war with Israel. Wouldn't that boggle your mind? But it could be possible because Israel, all Israelites are not Jews. Now I'm speaking of legitimate Americans to give you the analogy. Not all Americans are Texans. I'm not talking now about illegal immigrants or wetbacks, as they call them down there. Espada Mojada. Uh, they say, you know, how many, why there aren't any swimmers in Mexico? Well, because anybody that knows how to swim is on this side. And they, they just kid about that. But they're called Espada Mojada, which means wetback down there in Texas. So I'm talking about legitimate emigres or natural-born Americans. All Texans are Americans. But not all Americans are Texans, are they? There are Oregonians, and there are Nebraskans and Missourians, the Show Me State, and so on. Not all Israelites are Jews. Most of them are not. Many of them are Benjamites, Ephraimites. They are from Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, and Dan, and all the other tribes. And they went somewhere, and they put down roots. And they became great nations because Abraham was told, I will make thee a father of many nations. There are so many methods by which one may demonstrate the test commandment, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. One, was the law of God in force and effect before the giving of the tables of stone on Mount Sinai? Answer, yes it was. We used to enjoy that in second year Bible class by putting on the blackboard dozens of scriptures from Genesis right up to the end of the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus. We excluded Exodus 20 and did not allow the students to use that 
to demonstrate each point of the Ten Commandments where it was known to be a sin to break it. We came up with, like, for example, Genesis 13, 13 that comes to mind. How the, sin, the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the eternal God. Then we go back to 1 John 3, 4 and get the Bible definition of sin. What is sin? Sin is, quote-unquote, the transgression of the law. The men of Sodom were sinners. Then we go to Romans 4, 15. And we look at the fact that where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we draw the simple analogy that the policeman cannot stop and write you out a ticket for running a non-existent stop sign. If there is no law, you can't break it. But if there is a law, and there was, because of transgressions was the book of the law added, it says. Because of transgressions, God added a law, which is called the schoolmaster, which includes the statutes and judgments of the Old Testament, to lead them, to bring them to the knowledge of the need of forgiveness, because by the blood of bulls and goats there is no remission of sins, but the sins of our past generations and our generation and our own sins, according to God's law, require the shedding of blood. So sin is the transgression of the law, and the wages of sin is death. What you earn from lust, coveting, Sabbath-breaking, fornication, idolatry, cursing and taking God's name in vain, what you earn from adultery, illegitimacy, pornography, desertion, divorce, abandonment, child molestation, what you earn from sodomy and homosexuality, what you earn from murder and rape and robbery and riot is death. And death means exactly what it did to that young Marine who had seen the bits and pieces of smoking bodies. It means dead. It doesn't mean alive. And there are millions of people in this nation who believe it means alive. Why, when we read the Bible, can't we approach it as a child? Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth picked up a little child and said, Of such is the kingdom of God. Forbid them not and allow children to come unto me, because unless you repent and become as a child, looking up, O Father in heaven, thou art great and I am but small. But when you've got your vanity and you've got all of your arguments in place and you've got your background and you've got your old granddaddy that was a circuit riding Baptist preacher and all these arguments you've got and you're looking down at the Bible from some sort of intellectual superiority, well now, I know what my Bible says. A lot of people are absolutely ignorant of what the Bible says and they've got a lot of arguments about it and they don't know anything what I'm telling you about today about the law before the giving of the Decalogue at Sinai being in full force and effect in every one single one of the points of the Ten Commandments. They know nothing about the fact that the Sabbath day is re-enjoined upon Christians in the New Testament. They don't know that the very one who wrote with his own finger the laws of God, including the Sabbath day, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you don't need anybody to misinterpret for you the first chapter of John because the first chapter of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Our hands have handled Him, and we have looked upon Him. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He eternal life. Of whom is the first chapter of the book of John speaking? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Everybody knows that. Any fifth grader knows that. You just read it. What's it say? It says that in his pre-existent state, he was the one who said in Genesis 1, let there be light. He is the one who created Adam and inflated his lungs. He is the one who gave 
the Ten Commandments, who parted the Red Sea, who wrestled with Jacob in the dust of the earth, who promised Abraham the kingdom of God. So there is another method of proving whether or not Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath day. Now here, the sign, the identifying mark, the symbol, and if you read my book with the Mark of the Beast, you will find how important this is, that is to be perennial or perpetual, is the Sabbath day. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. doesn't say unto the Jews, it says unto you. It's holy unto God, but it's holy unto all of God's people. And, as it says in Galatians 3.19, to all black, yellow, brown races and other people, if ye be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're all one in Christ Jesus. God has made all men of one blood to dwell on the earth. And all of us, regardless as to our racial, linguistic, sociological, ethnic, political background, are one in Christ if we receive and accept Christ, if we repent of sin, if we are baptized as this gentleman was today. And God says that the angels are zipping around in heaven and there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who says, I'm not worth what you could scrape from underneath a garbage can. I am filthy, I am wretched, I have sinned before God and man, I have been a dirty, rotten so-and-so, you know, unprintable this and that, and I want God to just wash me off and clean me up and wash away my sins and forgive me. And it had better be a shuddering, shattering, emotional experience as well as a gargantuan, mind-boggling, intellectual experience, and it revolves around a complete, total change in your way of life. You've been living one way, your way, the way of vanity, ego, jealousy, lust, greed, the way of your own pretentious pride that shrugs off and shoulders aside the Word of God, and it wasn't important to you. And finally you realize, God's going to throw me into a lake of fire. No matter what man does to me, I can die of a great big horrible cancer. I can die of emphysema. I can die of a drug overdose. I can get run over by a Peterbilt truck where they'd have to slide me out of the door of the emergency ward and I'd be dead, but that still wouldn't be the penalty for sin. Because God's going to resurrect me, like he says in Luke 16, the parable of Lazarus, rich man, where the rich man sees this wall of flame approaching, and I'm going to be there alive, and God's going to grab me and throw me into a lake of fire where my flesh is going to burn. Now, some preachers claim Garner Ted's robbing the pulpit of its power. Hey, I don't want to hold my little finger under your Zippo lighter for 30 seconds. And I sure don't want my whole body with my hair to go up in a flash and my eyebrows and all the clothes to burn off blisters about that big before I'm breathing all these flames and die in shrieking agony in a fire. I don't know of any worse way to die than to be burnt to death. And God says Gehenna fire is the reward of sin. The test commandment of the 16th chapter of Exodus involving the quail was gather twice as much as you need on Friday and you stay indoors on God's Sabbath day. You hear what I said? Exodus 16. Where do you come across the giving of the Decalogue? Moses comes back down from the mountain. Exodus 20. The historical events of Exodus 16 and how God killed Israelites. He imposed that first penalty, the penalty of sin, not the ultimate penalty. But he took their human physical lives by a plague for defying him and breaking his Sabbath day before Moses ever came down to give those people the Ten Commandments. Was the Sabbath known? We'll read the 16th chapter of Exodus. Tomorrow is the Sabbath day that is holy unto the eternal thy God. 
You're not to be out working and gathering. You gather twice as much as you need on Friday, and you keep it up because Friday is the, you lay by yourself in store, because Friday is the preparation day, and on the Sabbath you rest. It's a day of recreation, rest, rejuvenation, of thanksgiving, of enjoying nature, enjoying your wife and your family, and worshiping before your God, observing a meeting if there is one, but otherwise praising God, praying to God, being aware of the fact that He is Creator. It looks back to prove that He is Creator. It looks forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The Sabbath day was always the biggest test. It was then. It is now. It is now. And there are millions of people who would be of the church of which I am a member if it weren't for the Sabbath day. Now, I don't mean this from any standpoint of vanity because God has given me a gift. And that gift is speaking. He's given me a voice that I inherited from my father. Now, I'm fairly good at imitating. I don't think I can be as good as Rich Little, but I could get close in some way. I would know how to imitate some of these Baptist pastors. I really could. I could be a great Pentecostal preacher. I'd ruin my voice screaming like that. I could sing, just got through, and when I sing, I get emotional. I have a hard time singing, especially a real rich, uh, godly, religious song, because I tend to get carried away with what it you know, does to my mind, so I get a little emotional when I sing. But if I wanted to just get on television like these other guys, and sing, and get my wife there with her banjo, you know, now Sister Shirley is here. <laughs> Praise God, you know, come my wife, praise the Lord, say, say amen, help me somebody, say hallelujah. I could do all that, and then I could beg for money about 30% of the time, and I could have me a condo in Florida, and I could have me a big home out in California, and I could be running around the world, you know, doing all kinds of things, be in trouble with the law, like the guy Hilton Tilton, whatever his name is down there, and have all kinds of people after me in lawsuits, but I'd have a big legal department, I'd say, well, take it up with God, he's the one that did it all, I didn't do nothing, and God did it all. I mean, I am a good enough speaker and a good enough imitator that if I wanted to be a charlatan, uh, an all-rotten fraud, if I wanted to screw my face up, oh, pray like that, and I just cast out this demon, all that garbage on television, ranting and raving like an absolute fool, if you saw somebody, you're peeking through your mobile home, you know, you got the door, and somebody's out there, and he's going like this. He's say, oh, dial 911 and get rid of this guy. <laughs> Carry this guy away. I got an idiot out there in my front yard. Uh, he's going to hurt somebody. Henry, pen up the hogs. No tell what this guy's going to do. And but you invite him into your home on television. You wouldn't if he was on your front door post, your front door stoop. You wouldn't say, come on in, Mr. Hilton or Tilton, whatever his name is, Tipton. I don't know his name is, but you know who I'm talking about. But you let him in there. You sit there. Well, isn't that entertaining? Well, no, it's not. It's, it's uh, well, never mind. I don't need a lawsuit. One of his right-hand men may be in here today. <laughs> what I'm telling you is that if I wanted, and I'm telling you the truth, and I'm saying it humbly because I recognize that the gift that God has given me from God, and God could take it away from me, that if I wanted to be a fraud, I could build a church of a million members, is what I'm telling you, if I didn't observe God's Sabbath day. The Sabbath is what sticks in a lot of your craws the way it stuck in mine when I was 10, 11, and 13. Isn't it? 
Well, that's your problem, see. I overcame my problem with God's help way back then, and I observe God's Sabbath day now because I know I should. Let me take you to something. You ask yourself about this scripture. Let's just go through one in Isaiah 56 right quickly. It's kind of a fun test case to find out whether the Bible means what it says. It'll just be a little bit of a lesson in the English language. It's not difficult. This is one of the scriptures Mrs. Runcorn told my mom to read. Isaiah, the 56th chapter, and beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Eternal, Keep ye judgment, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Hmm. Talking about salvation. My salvation is near to come, and my righteousness, that's the perfect observance of God's law, bereft of sin, unsullied, white as the driven snow, pure Christian righteousness. Blessed is the man, doesn't say Jew, does it, that does this, and the Son of Man that lays hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Doesn't say Jew, says man. I remind you that Isaiah spoke to the nations, not just to the Jews. He was the prophet to all the nations. Neither let the son of the stranger, that was the proselyte, that was the Gentile, that was the dark swarthy peoples of Ishmael and the Arab races who lived all around, whether Egypt or the Arab states, all around ancient Palestine. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the eternal speak, saying, The eternal has utterly separated me from his people. I'm different. I'm of a different race. I'm not of the chosen race. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree, because of what the law said about eunuchs, that they couldn't enter into the temple area because they were disfigured. For thus says the eternal unto the eunuchs, That keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Question. Did God save people because they were obedient in keeping the Sabbath way back during the days of Isaiah? But you don't have to do it anymore today. Is that the way God works? When God's Word says very clearly, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the Bible says very clearly, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, because he's talking about the fact that he had bound himself by his promises to Abraham, and it was because of Abraham's faithfulness, and Abraham had demonstrated that even at the extreme example of being asked to sacrifice his own son, Abraham stolidly and doggedly went one foot on after the other one right down the line of obedience to God, saying, well, then God is going to resurrect him, or God's going to provide another one, no matter what happens, though he slay me, as Job prayed, yet will I obey and will I serve God. If I have to serve God foolishly, prayed David, then let me serve him foolishly, but I will still serve God. And because Abraham was so faithful, God said, therefore, down through the generations of his own seed and his progeny, he would bind himself by an oath that the seed of Abraham would inherit the high places of this earth 
and he has seen to it that they have done exactly that. In the United States of America, the British Commonwealth of Nations, and many other countries in Northwestern Europe. Here are eunuchs and strangers, Gentiles, being promised salvation and everlasting name. Verse 6, the sons of the strangers that join themselves to the eternal to serve him and to love the name of the eternal, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And he goes on to talk about how their offerings and sacrifices will be accepted. Now, here is the name a perpetual name, better than of sons and of daughters, salvation, righteousness, eternal life, the high places of the earth, his holy mountain, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem at the second coming of Christ, promised for Gentiles and other people who observe God's Sabbath day. I once had an argument with a group of people that didn't last very long because I simply asked them a question. They were two Church of Christ ministers. They'd come to one of my meetings over in Monroe, Louisiana. I'm going to turn to the book of Mark, Mark 2, verse 26 and 7, and I'll turn there while I'm telling you what I was preaching about. I was preaching about God's annual holy days and God's Sabbath, God's weekly and annual Sabbath day. And they were coming up there trying to argue. I don't argue the Bible with anybody. People are welcome to their opinion. They want to argue. They're going to be talking to the wall because I'm already gone. Because the Bible tells me not to do that. If any come and bring not this doctrine, neither bid them Godspeed, nor allow them or entertain them into your house. People are completely welcome to their foolish notions. There are enough snake doctors and idiots sitting on beds and nails staring at the sun going blind over in India to populate Peoria. And those guys don't have one thing I'm interested in. Somebody can have a meeting and try to teach me my mantra and everybody comes in supposed to say, Oom! And then learn, you know, teach me. We saw where we went to breakfast this morning. Charlie and I got it. was going to hold forth in there with a lecture board. And there was a sign of a bunch of East Asian Indian words. And these Americans were going to go in there and learn how to pronounce in the East Asian Indian language the word for grace or faith or welcome or hello or good morning or goodbye. Wasn't that wonderful? What has Hinduism ever done for India? 500 million people living in the absolute filth and squalor and sickness and disease and, and infant mortality that you cannot believe that horrible, wretched place. I've been to Bombay. The trucks that go along and pick up the, sweet, the, the, the people from the streets that have died during the last night in Calcutta, the gaps where they're burning the bodies, the bits and pieces of, of ash floating down the so-called Holy River. The Ganges are out there bathing and rubbing it all over themselves. There are bits and pieces of human beings that have been burnt floating down the river. The tide goes out, and there must have been a crowd five times this size just on the tidal flats out there defecating and urinating in front of each other in Bombay while I was there. And you go along the street, and there's a huge traffic jam, and there were about six white Brahmin cattle out there lying on each other, one of them with its head over the other shoulder, chewing their cud, and the taxi drivers and everybody else is stopping, real polite, going around, don't drive on anything. I'd get out there with a two-before and job those dumb cows out of the street, but the trouble is, if I did that, they'd kill me because that is their God. They won't eat them. Every time a little piece of green sticks itself out of the of the uh, soil they're out there cropping it to try to beat the pigeons to it because they're starving a lot of them. So they just eat, they compete with their cattle for food, but they won't eat the cattle. They worship the cattle. 
And there are Americans who will follow some Indian guru and buy him a new Cadillac for every day of the year. The Bhagwan, remember him? And, and some of them sometimes have to escape back where they came from and leave all that wealth behind, I guess. But there are people who believe in all of that stuff. So I don't argue with that. If people have those, those nonsensical, weird, crazy ideas... I remember a man telling me up in Colorado one day, he says, look there, I can tell you right there. See that area up there with all them rocks? See where there ain't no trees? That's destructive rock. That means nothing will grow there. And I'll tell you what's underneath it, uranium, because it's a destructive element. I got your attention, didn't I? Trouble was, it was just a big, sleek, steep area of rock where no tree could grow. And this guy was so ignorant, he didn't know what in the world he was talking about, but he had a theory, and he would sit there and tell you about that theory for an hour and a half if you're willing to listen. So there are people like that. I will always go back to the Word of God. Well, here I was preaching on the Sabbath, and I've got these two guys, and they want to argue. So I just said, now look, if I show you one scripture in the Bible that says Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Lord of the Sabbath day, will you keep it? They cut shut their Bibles. They said, no, we won't, and they walked out of that room. That was the end of that argument. They wanted to get out of there before I told them about that scripture. Well, I would have opened up where Mrs. Runcorn showed my mom in Mark 2, 26 and 7. How it says, verse 27 and 8, I'm sorry, verse 27 and 8. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made. Let's go through it slowly. The Sabbath was made. Now, the Sabbath was designated as a unit of time by the eternal God at creation and is non-observable by any calend by any cycle, by any astronomical or other phenomena having to do with the rotational pattern of the earth or the solar calendar or any other movement of the heavenly bodies. You can't tell which day of the week it is except for God's people who have never forgotten. That's the only way you've got any information. So people say, well, hasn't time been lost? No, because there have always been people from Adam on the earth, and they've simply never lost track. One or two of them might add, but not any thousands upon thousands of them all at the same day at the same time. The weekly cycle is non-observable in astronomical phenomena. It is a divinely ordained unit of time. After the sixth day of creation, which was really recreation, the world might be four and a half billion years of age, because the continents were beneath the turgid waters, and God said, let the dry land appear. And he said, let there be light. But there had been creatures on this earth long before Adam. Where do you think you ladies get your pantyhose and nylons? That's on the bodies of dead dinosaurs. All those deposits of oil and coal that God caused to be buried beneath the rocks of our earth from a much earlier creation that predates Adam by perhaps millions or billions of years. So he said, let there be light. And he created all the plants and the animals and finally created man on the sixth day. And then God rested on the Sabbath day, blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. So he made it. So we're reading here in Christ's own words, the Sabbath was made for the Jews. No, some of you don't have a Bible. I'm just being cute here. It says for man, doesn't it? It's made for man. Not as an obstacle to man. Not as a stumbling block to man. Not as a curse upon man. Not as something terrible for man. But for him. For his benefit. For his good. What if he had to work seven days straight? Some people think they ought to do that. Some people do do it to try to, quote, get ahead and make a living. And exhaust themselves. God says everybody needs a rest. 
and it's to be a complete rest from your daily work-a-day routine, from the way you earn your living, plowing your field, harvesting crops, driving a truck, whatever it is you're doing. You don't do it on the Sabbath day. He said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Jews, of course, had it the other way around. The Sabbath was a burden. It was a, it was a curse unto them. They had so many do's and don'ts and so many dozens of rigorous things you did and didn't do that it was just you took some kind of a Philadelphia lawyer to figure it all out. It was okay if a flea was calling on you. You couldn't kill him until he bit you. And if he bit you, then you could grab the little devil and put him between your thumbnails and you could kill him. But it was too much work to kill him unless he perpetrated that evil deed. If he bit you, then you can kill him. But otherwise the law said you can't kill a flea on the Sabbath because that's too much work. Isn't that ridiculous, the way men will take religion to that kind of an extreme? But they did. And this was as a result of, of course, a controversy that came up beginning verse 23 about how they were going through a field and taking ears of wheat, not corn. Corn wasn't even discovered until we discovered the Indians growing it down here in uh, Central South America. The Bible sometimes says corn, but it always should read wheat. And they were taking the wheat and doing that and chewing it, and because the... Uh, Pharisees, who were the religious fanatics, were outlawed, were just outraged about that. They said they're doing something that's unlawful on the Sabbath day. So Jesus responded, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews right quickly. Then I want to come... Well, let me, let me before we go there, let me go to 1 Corinthians, the uh, 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to really understand this scripture. This is fascinating, a little piece of history here as to how this took place and, and why it happened exactly the way it did. I should say Acts, and here I'm saying first. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I'm sorry. Yeah. Acts, the 13th chapter. Acts 13, and beginning to read in verse 37. Here the Apostle Paul is preaching to a group of Gentile people about the resurrection. And he is preaching primarily to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles in a synagogue about the history of God's people and about the resurrection. So in verse 38 he said, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that is Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. To justify is to rectify, to make right, to remove past guilt, and to get you right with God again. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And he quotes it, Behold, you despisers, and wonder, and die, perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you, talking about the tribulation and the day of the Lord and the plagues of God to come upon sinning mankind. Now, notice. When the Jews were gone out of that synagogue, when was this written? About 59 A.D. When did it take place? In the early 50s A.D. How long ago had Christ been crucified? In 31 A.D. This is probably 22 to 25, somewhere between 20 and 30 years after whatever had been nailed to the cross had been nailed to the cross. Plenty of time in that many years quite a little chunk out of somebody's life for whatever was happening in the early New Testament church with regard to which day you ought to worship to have happened and have taken place. Now here are the Gentiles. The Jews are gone. Notice what the Gentiles say. 
When the congregation had broken up, well, in verse 42, when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, Paul should have explained right then and there, why, dear brother, you don't need to wait and go home, go to work, and wait a whole week and come back next Sabbath. Come on in here tomorrow on the day that all of us early New Testament Christians worship God, and I'll preach to you on Sunday. What's the Bible say? Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city, most of them Gentiles, not Jews, together to hear the word of God. Paul, quote, as his custom was, it says in the book of Acts, preached unto them on the Sabbath day. Now, all of you understand the English language. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Let me show you one of the scriptures Mrs. Runcorn gave my mom. Let us therefore fear, he's breaking into a thought, verse 1, from the end of the third chapter, in which it says in verse 15, quoting from Joshua, it is said, today, notice the capital letter on the word today in the King James Bible, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, talking about the murmurings at the waters of Meribah and during the days when they tempted God in the wilderness. Joshua on a Sabbath day's journey, on the weekly Sabbath day, had the Israelites walk across a river not much wider than this room. It was a miracle from God that provided the river backed up so they walked across dry shod. The leaders of the tribe picked up one stone apiece, twelve of them, and as they were going through the dead, dry stream bed, the water is now backed up by a divine miracle to allow Israel, the new generation that had not been born when they came out of Egypt, they were all born in the wilderness, their parents had all died in the wilderness, Moses was buried in the wilderness under Joshua, whose name is Joshua, and the beautiful scriptural type is obvious, a picture of Jesus leading his people into the promised land. They went across the river, dry shod, set up the twelve stones, and Joshua stood up there and preached to them, and it was the Sabbath day. Chronology and history proves it. Now, he said unto them on that day, Today, and there's a psalm cited here, 95, verse 7. If you will hear his voice, chapter 3, verse 15 of the book of Hebrews, harden not your hearts as in the provoking of God, the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. With whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest? Greek word, kata pausin. You understand the word pause out of that Greek word, we pause. Kata, K-A-T-A is the prefix, it means down in place or in time. Kata, down pausing, means a down sitting or a lying down or a rest. Kata pausing. Everywhere except one place we're coming to. Where you read the word rest, it is metaphor for the promised land, metaphor for the kingdom of God, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word is catapausing, down-sitting, or a rest, but in one place. Let's read it. They could not enter in because of disobedience or unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us, entering into his rest, the picture of God's rest now, the kingdom of God, 
any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Skepticism, anger, doubt, vanity, pride, but not faith, not belief, and not humble acceptance. For we which have believed do enter into rest. What do you think that means? I know what it means. Some of you may not. We which have believed do every single week keep the Sabbath day. That's what that really means. We enter into rest on a weekly basis. Continually, we enter into rest. If you want to think it's metaphorical, we are going to eventually inherit the kingdom. Help yourself. But that isn't what it means. We enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, or shall they enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, quote, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, end quote. And in this place again, another scripture quoted, shall they, if they, it really means will they, they're not about to, shall they enter into my rest? Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again, he limits a certain day. That is, he points out, he brackets, he sets aside, he delineates a certain day. And he says this, saying in David, in that psalm, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua, as it should be rendered, had given them rest, cataphosin, then afterward he would not have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest. Greek word, sabbatismos. It's in the margin of many large Bibles, like the Philadelphia Bible. And it is in the margin, quote, a keeping of the Sabbath. There remaineth, therefore, a keeping of the Sabbath, not cataphosin, Look it up in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Look it up in the Diaglot. Look it up in any of the Bible helps you want to. The Greek word kataposin is used every place throughout these two chapters except this verse where it is sabbatismos, and it means a keeping of the Sabbath remains unto the people of God. For he is entered into his rest. He also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. What is the subject here? It's God resting on the Sabbath day after creation. It is the picture of Joshua and the Hebrews inheriting the promised land as a type of the millennium. Therefore, since it hasn't occurred yet, we haven't entered God's kingdom yet. Every week, we enter into our sabbatismos, a keeping of God's Sabbath day, depicting the very kingdom of God into which we pray to enter when Christ comes to rule this world with a rod of iron. And then he goes on, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The last chapter of the Bible, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, says this. I want to turn to verse 13. I, Christ, he is saying, am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. I can demonstrate to you historically 
And you can do it to yourself the way my father, bless his heart, and God rest him, who died six years ago at age 93 and a half, fought my mother tooth and toenail and threatened her with divorce and finally, after six months' study, much of it on his knees, had to come like a whimpering, whipped child and say, Loma, you were right and I was wrong. And surrender to God and begin keeping his Sabbath day and he did for the rest of his natural life. Now, my father was used to raise up what was called the Radio Church of God. And when I was baptized and joined with him and some of the original pioneers of Ambassador College in 1953 and was ordained in 1955, I remember coming here to Springfield, as I told many of you yesterday, for what was to be a six-month campaign, six nights a week, in 1958, 34 long years ago. I still have every one of my sermon notes from that meeting in the Jewel Theater. The first night's crowd was 609 people, including a whole batch of Baptist ministers. And in the old newspaper, if you want to go get the Springfield paper and look through the archives, there were ads of special choirs and special events in every church in Springfield. Because they feared me, they didn't want those people to come to hear me, they had something else provided for them. And one Baptist pastor walked out and spit in the carpet and said, horse teeth, when it was all over. Because here I'm a young 28-year-old up there, inspired, preaching from the Word of God, and he didn't like a word that he heard. But four weeks later, 202 people showed up to listen to the final message delivered by my father who came in on the train after my brother Dick had been killed. And I stood there in the song service and bawled like a little baby because that was my dad and mom and my brother was dead. And I'd had to hear it over the telephone while I was here in that campaign. And I led those people through all of the doctrines of the Bible. But the final one that took me three, four, five days to preach about was the law in force and effect before Sinai. Are the Ten Commandments to be obeyed today? Did any man, any church, ever have the authority to change what God had set in motion? Is there proof that the apostles in the New Testament kept God's Sabbath and His annual holy days? I've got all the sermon notes, 20, 30, 40 scriptures in each sermon that tended to go an hour and a half and two hours in those days. And some of you people with gray hair were sitting there in those services at that time. And some few of you were here on that Sabbath day when my father spoke. How many of you were here on that day when my dad spoke? About eight or ten of you. That's great. Well, you remember it as well as I do then. And we started a church in Springfield, Missouri in 1958 because those people had sat there six nights a week and heard the Word of God, and many of them were baptized and became members of God's church. I didn't come here this weekend to take anything from you. We have not taken up collections. We're not about to now. Free attendance, free to get in, free to get out. Why did I do this, you suppose? I've been calling my wife. She had been babysitting for our little six-weeks-old granddaughter, little Sonia D., and uh, her parents were gone Friday night and most of the Sabbath and came back and picked her up yesterday afternoon. And I'm up here perspiring, and there's no hot water in my room, so I take a cold shower and wash my hair in cold water, and so on. And we pay for the room, and we buy our own food, and you folks come to listen. Now, I'm not such an egotist that I've just got to listen to myself talk. I'm tired of hearing myself talk. I'd just soon let some angel come along and say, Ted, you're in the wrong business. And I'd kiss his foot and lovingly retie his shoe and go my way and go fishing or do something else. But I'm afraid to do that. I kind of have this Jonah complex. I'm afraid that if I don't do what God Almighty seems to have 
put in front of me is my commission, my calling, and my job that something horrible might happen to me. I'm also afraid that something bad would happen to an awful lot of other people who look not to me but to Jesus Christ, but at least hope that I will continue doing what I'm doing because they are clinging to the faith that was once delivered and they know that I have been catalytic to a group of people to bring them together in what is called the Church of God International with approximately a hundred churches and study groups and fellowship groups many of them very small six, eight or a dozen meeting in people's homes some of them a hundred, hundred and twelve or twenty or thirty some of them fifty or sixty scattered all over the United States under a voluntary ministry who are self-employed with only one exception Mr. Theodore Phillips, who was hired way back in 1978, and he's a little older and along now, but our policy is voluntary pastors of chartered churches. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something, and I'm not Billy Graham. I'm going to ask you to repent. I'm going to ask you to get rid of your prejudice and your pride, and if you think for one reason, you sell yourself short, and you think that you are not important, and that you're less than a wart and a frog tying leg, then you're saying to yourself, my being here today doesn't have any meaning. And you're saying to yourself, God doesn't even know who I am. And I'm telling you, God knows your first and your middle name. And I'm telling you, there may be a reason why. Was it curiosity? Was it, well, you see me on TV, I wonder what it is, I wonder how tall he is? What was it? You came here, is there some reason why you came here today to hear this particular message? Don't sell yourself short. It may be that you have been given a little window of opportunity and that God Almighty in heaven above has something to do with it. And that if you miss it and you just shrug it off and you go your way and wipe your mouth and say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. My pastor doesn't believe all that stuff. Why don't you go out and spit in the carpet and say, horse teeth. I'm telling you on the name and the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you've heard the truth of God today from a servant of God telling you the Sabbath day is holy to God and you're to keep your feet off of it and observe it and believe it and obey it. And that is merely the first step because all that says to God is, I'm through fighting you, Lord. I'm going to give up. I'm going to surrender my will to yours and I will obey you. Now, it's easy to sit there in your chair and say, well, I'm not going to lust anymore. But that doesn't do anything. Because you see, the seventh, the sixth, the fourth, or even the first, or the tenth, are not the test commandments. Always the Sabbath was the test commandment. It was then, and it is now. Are you going to keep God's Sabbath, some of you who haven't been? You don't understand, do you? That breaking God's Sabbath day is as bad as stabbing your grandmother to death. You don't have the faintest idea that God doesn't categorize sin. That Sabbath-breaking, trampling your feet and your will and your way and your entertainment and your shopping and your business and your job on God's holy time is slapping God in the face. It is a sin, and it's punishable by death. Now, you have an opportunity. Think about it. Study. Sure. You want to keep your intellect sovereign? Then write for the booklet on Saturday, Sunday, which? Get Emanuel Abakaoki's book, who is a Jesuit priest who researched every single little encyclical and change and alteration and admission by the Roman Catholic Church that will prove to you how they changed it over centuries and where the Protestant churches got the idea they ought to be worshiping on the so-called Day of the Sun in the first place. The only day God ever dignified with a name is the Sabbath. The others are just one, two, three, four, five, six. Wednesday is not the day of Woden. Tuesday is not the day of Thus. Thursday is not Thor's day. 
Friday is not the day of Friday. Saturday is not the day of Saturn. And Sunday is not the day of Solus Invictus or the Sun. It's just the first work day of the week. The only day that God dignified with a name is Shabbat, Shabuah, Shabbat, the Sabbath, God's holy Sabbath day. I'm going to go my way and fold up my tent, and I'll guarantee you one thing. Some of you will never lay eyes on me in this human physical life again. Because either I'll be gone, or you will. Or we simply won't have this particular time and occasion to meet together again. May the eternal God in heaven somehow touch your hearts and make my coming here have been worth your while. God bless you all. Goodbye. Thank you.